everyone. Ryan here, one of your hosts for the SFC podcast, a podcast about what it looks like to be the light of Jesus in the ski and snowboard culture. Now today, today is a special day. Today I'm joined by a co-host, Allie Heenan, who's going to help me introduce our next series of the podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Allie and I am so glad to be a part of this next series. What we're going to share with you over the next nine weeks is super special to us and we are really praying that God uses this series to draw you in close to Him. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Allie. Yeah. So we're shifting in a different direction with series two. It's going to have a little bit of a different feel than the first one. In this series, we're going to be focusing on the topic of spiritual formation. And it's going to feature some talks that Allie and I gave at a recent conference called VSFC Bootcamp. So it won't be super conversational like the first series was. We'll definitely get back to those kinds of episodes. But for now, we're shifting in a different direction to address a topic that we believe is incredibly important. It's important for us as believers, and it's important for us as skiers and snowboarders who are actively engaging people on the hill and in our local communities. Yes, totally. And just as a personal story for why I love sharing on this topic, I remember when I first started learning about spiritual formation, I read the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And he said he first really dove into spiritual formation because when he first became a pastor of a church, he started teaching each week and eventually got to a point where he felt like he had taught his congregation everything he knew. And he was like, and that was only two months in. And so he really started pursuing God through these different spiritual practices found in scripture that we're going to talk about. And it allowed him to just continually come before God, grow in his relationship with him, and honestly have encouragement and teaching to pour out to the people in his congregation. And that story just really resonated with me because I imagine we've all come to a place where we don't feel like we have much to give to the people we're leading, or at least I know I have. And these different practices allowed me to really be filled by God so that I had something to pour out to the people around me. Thanks, Allie. Now, I think it's important that we give you guys, the listeners, a couple of quick notes before you get started on this series. Number one, these lessons were recorded on an iPhone in a small little condo living room classroom thing. So the audio quality might not be ideal at times. You're going to hear people move around, cough, laugh, amen, which is the whole Christian agree thing, and probably a bunch of other things. Number two, there are visuals that we used during this conference that you're not going to be able to see obviously because you're listening to a podcast but we'll do our best to make sure that these visuals make their way in some form into the show notes somewhere yeah third these lessons were a labor of love ryan and i spent a lot of time preparing for them and there were a lot of books that influenced and shaped us as we prepared and you'll hear us reference those throughout each of these talks but know that at the end of each episode in the show notes we're going to provide a list of all the references that we make just in case you're interested to read more on this subject of spiritual formation. The first two episodes in the series, also just as a side note, will be a little longer than usual. They're longer because we needed to define some things. And if you guys are familiar with hearing from Ryan, you know that he likes to define things. We needed to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about that week. So I'm letting you know up front because I know we're all busy and we all have things going on and different podcasts that we listen to, but I want to encourage you just to stick it out. Pause it and come back to it if you need to. That's totally okay. But push through because these first two talks really set the stage for the rest of the series. And thanks again for tuning in. 
we're really excited and honored that you're here listening to the SFC podcast. We really do hope that you're going to find the next couple of episodes helpful. And as always, our prayer is that all of us will continue to be challenged to shine brighter and to bridge better. So enjoy this first teaching from the SFC Bootcamp on Spiritual Formation. to start by just reading a passage from Exodus. And if you want to turn there with me, you can. It's Exodus 34, starting in verse 28. And just a little bit of background here. So Moses is kind of the mediator between all of God's people, the Israelites and God. And he's the one that can go and seek God face to face while the Israelites kind of go through Moses to meet him. Moses is given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And while he's away, all of his people, all of the Israelites decide Moses has been gone for too long. God God must not be worth worshiping. And so we're going to build this golden calf and we're going to worship that instead. It's this tragic story where he's like away for too long and they're like, okay, we'll just worship something else then. And so Moses comes back, sees everyone worshiping this golden calf, is outraged, and he takes the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and throws them on the ground and they break. And so this passage that we're about to read is when Moses goes back up on the mountain and seeks God again for the Ten Commandments. So let's start there. Okay, so Exodus 34, verse 28. It says, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, but they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all of the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. So now we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. So what's cool about this is Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he speaks to this exact scenario in Exodus. So verse seven, it says, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. 
but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so verse 18 there, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. That's the verse that captures spiritual formation. All the things that we're going to talk about, they're aimed at being transformed into the image of Jesus. And In the Old Testament, there was kind of this pattern of God's people stepping further and further away from direct access to him. So it started that God would lead the Israelites with this cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It was like they had direct access to his presence. And then they were like, no, that's too much. We want a prophet. We want someone to go to God on our behalf and we'll just go to him in order to hear from God. And then they said, no, that's too much. We want a king. We just want someone to rule over us, make sure we're doing what's right, and that'll be enough. And what happens in the New Testament then is Jesus comes and he says, no, now all of you again have the spirit. He restores us back to this intimate access that we have to God. And that's what all of this is based in. Like it says in verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And As we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we are being transformed into more free people. That's where we get the abundant life that Jesus talks about in scripture that he calls us to. That's what it's through. And so something that I kind of wrote as I was thinking about this, I was like, what's a model of freedom? And I like people, everyone has different areas that they're really free in, but God is the most, this goes without saying, but God is the most free in all of those areas. And so I wrote this down, uh, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking on him, being with him, it transforms us into his likeness and brings about our freedom. God is free to give of himself without hesitation. He's free to trust. He's free to love without reciprocation, without holding back. He's free to bless. He's free to give grace. He's free to mourn with you. He's free to rejoice with you. He's free to love those who are annoying and don't do what he says. God is free. And I think so often I don't love people the way that God calls us to love people because there's an area that I'm not free. Whether it's my selfishness or my self-consciousness. Like there's so many things that hold us back from living the life that God has called us to, and through these different practices, through the things that we're going to talk about this week, God's going to bring about our freedom, and he's going to free us from ourselves. He's going to free us from sin. He's going to free us from a narrow focus only on the things that we're involved in. Like, God's going to free us, and so that's my encouragement for this week is lean into that. Like, lean into what God wants to do through this time, because it's not just a list of things that now we're going to go do. Like he's going to transform us and we're going to be more free, more loving, more gracious followers of Jesus on the other side of that. 
So that's my encouragement. Lean in when you feel the Holy Spirit pressing you. Lean in and let him do what he's going to do. And now we're going to take a quick break. If you're enjoying the SFC podcast and you're curious as to what other kinds of resources we offer, we'd encourage you to visit our website at wearesfc.org. There you'll find a host of other resources that are available for free. Our goal here at SFC is to encourage and equip people to carry out their God-given calling to be the light of Jesus to the shred culture. And one of the ways that we can do that is by offering resources free of charge to anyone and everyone who has a heart for skiers and snowboarders. That being said, if you'd like to help us continue to make resources like the podcast, you can partner with us by going to wearesfc.org slash donate. Your partnership means the world to us and makes it possible for us to continue to resource skiers and snowboarders around the globe. And now back to the episode. Upcoming is a talk that yours truly gave at the SFC boot camp, and it is an introduction to spiritual formation. Hope you enjoy. So I recently read an author who had likened the reality of formation to the Titanic. And at first I thought it was kind of a funny comparison. So I, I like started like pouring over all these articles and reading survivor stories and like doing all this stuff. And this isn't meant to be a history lesson on the Titanic, but I think that there are some interesting things about the Titanic that make it an incredible analogy to what we're going to be talking about this week in regards to personal formation. So bear with me for a few moments here. As many of you probably know, the Titanic was known as the unsinkable ship. And that wasn't necessarily because the engineers who developed the ship or designed the ship actually believed it would never sink. It was literally just said so that they could express their confidence in the ship, in the ship's construction. So the Titanic at the time of its construction was revolutionary in its design and in its technology. The ship had 16 watertight compartments that lined the entire ship, which was meant to help the ship stay afloat in the event of a collision or other serious event. So according to the engineers, um, up to four compartments of those 16 could be completely flooded and the ship would stay afloat for like two to three days. And so because of the ship's many safety features, it was deemed the unsinkable ship. So April 10th, 1912, after like it goes through all of its tests, it's deemed seaworthy and it heads to, heads to England to pick up its passengers and then it's gonna begin its maiden, voy- maiden voyage. The first few days um, were pretty uneventful. Everyone was just enjoying their time on this like big, arguably the most opulent ship that was in existence at the time. Um, but on April 14th, 1912, that would change and it would change pretty quickly. April 14th, according to the survivors, if you read the survivor accounts, it's pretty incredible. It was like a beautiful night. It was, it was frigid, but it was beautiful. The stars filled the sky. There was like no clouds. There was hardly any wind. They said, uh, survivors said the sea, the sea was as calm as a lake. Just kind of crazy. It was serene. So everybody seemed to be in pretty good spirits, and everything on the ship was going relatively smoothly. But about 20 minutes until midnight, there was a sudden shock that ran through the boat. And it was at that moment that the boat had hit the iceberg. And here's the curious thing, and this is what got me. There was no real panic. 
whatsoever. It was noticed, but for the majority of the people on, the bo- on board, it was business as usual. I was reading um, some of the survivor accounts, and according to one survivor who was outside smoking a cigarette at the time of the collision, he said that they, he felt something, but it was like nothing compared to what he actually saw. When he saw the iceberg, he was like, oh, that thing is huge. Like, so to him, didn't even register. He's like, man, considering the size of the iceberg and how fast we were going, are you kidding me? That was crazy. Other survivors described hearing suspicious scraping sounds, but nothing that was like overly alarming. They kind of got up from bed, looked around, and then just went back to bed. And so again, for most people on the ship, it was business as usual. And there weren't many people on the ship who actually knew the gravity of the situation (laughs) that was unfolding. And that's what makes the story so crazy. The contrast between the upper levels of the ship and the lower levels of the ship. So when the iceberg hit the ship, six slits were cut into, um, into the side of the ship and water started filling all these various compartments. So these watertight compartments, what, they weren't actually watertight. They, like, they, didn't, they were these things that were like, kind of sealed, but at the top, there was space. So they weren't actually watertight. And what ended up happening is the water filled, they started like an ice tray. It started to pour over into the other compartments, which is what actually caused the ship to break and, and sink. So most everybody working and residing in the lower levels of the ship knew that something serious had just happened, <clears throat> right? Because water was coming in at an alarming rate. But everybody at the, on the upper levels of the ship, completely oblivious. There was no panic. Life was great because they couldn't see the water. Life was great because they couldn't see the water. And it wouldn't be long before the water from the lower levels of the ship would rise and completely consume the ship. And so by now, I think you can probably see where I'm going with this. We often walk around oblivious to what's going on in our hearts, to what's going on in the deepest levels and recesses of our soul. And so as I look around at our society, I can't help but think that many of us have become content to live on the surface, to to deal with only what's right in front of our faces. But ignoring what's going on in our hearts in the deepest levels of our souls doesn't make that stuff go away. And my worry is that if we fail to tend to our hearts like the Titanic, it will only be a matter of time before those problems rise to the surface. And so let me push the analogy a little bit further with the Titanic. There's always been a lot of controversy surrounding the sinking of the Titanic, primarily because there was a lot of things that could have been done to prevent that many people losing their lives. Um, And some of that, as I was reading it, reading all these articles, some of that, in my opinion, is chronological snobbery. Like, it's, like, hindsight's always 20-20, right? I think, like, you can look back and you could have seen things that the engineers could have done to make the ship more secure. But the ship, at the time, met every safety standard, legally. And it was deemed seaworthy. So that being said, um, I do think that there were things that were overlooked, that were permitted, that by today's standards, that would never fly. Um, it would be considered highly suspect. But the most glaring example is the number of lifeboats on the Titanic. The ship's original design would have allowed the ship to accommodate 64 lifeboats. And that's a number that would have easily been able to accommodate every single person on board plus more. But this number was significantly reduced twice. Not because of space, not because of cost, but because it made the boat look too cluttered. So they went from 64 in its design down to 20. So in other words, it just wasn't aesthetically pleasing. 
So they removed a row of lifeboats before the voyage even began. And so even though the Titanic was in compliance with maritime law, to me, that just seems naive. <laughs> like, I can't help but think that it had to do something with hubris, a bunch of arrogance and excessive self-confidence. And so this was a cosmetic decision that arguably led to the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of people. And reading this history, while I was preparing for the conference, I looked at, like, I found myself starting to get angry. Like, why the heck did you care what the ship looked like? It doesn't matter. Like, safety, though, right? Um, you could have potentially saved so many more lives. But like most things, as I was, like, finding myself kind of getting angry, because you're reading me, so I have kids, and, like, so many kids passed away. But like most things, I realize that while I offer criticism, these are the same types of behaviors that are present in my own life. And so when I took a step back, this is the question that hit me. How many of us are pursuing a cosmetic type of faith? You know, like where things look good on the outside, we're doing all the right things, the things we know we should do, but for what? And the question that hits me is, there, is there any real change or transformation occurring in our lives? Are we doing these things because we trust Jesus and believe that it actually leads to life transformation, actual transformation? Or are we doing these things out of a sense of obligation? And I guess that's what makes me nervous. And I, I'm definitely speaking to myself here. I'm nervous that at times I'm pursuing a cosmetic gospel. Where I'm, like, where I'm concerned with behavior modification rather than life transformation. I'm worried that at times I'm trying to prove something to someone or to God, and that I'm failing, or I'm falling into the, the trap of outside-in thinking. And I'm worried that I'm making superficial changes and neglecting the deep work that God actually wants to do inside of me. Simply put, I'm worried that I'm like, I'm settling. I'm neglecting the deep formation that God wants to do in my life and settling for something shallow. And so that's what this week is going to be about. And we're going to be asking those kinds of questions in the hopes that we gradually learn to lean into the deep transformative work that God wants to do in our lives. And we won't be content any longer to settle for being shallowly shaped by culture. So that's my intro. Um, now to make sure we're on the same page, I, I want to begin. This is what I'll typically do when I teach is I, I would like to define things because I think like especially I grew up in the church and I heard these terms growing up all the time. But like nobody ever, it was just assumed that you knew what they meant. And it's like, I don't, what does that even mean? Like, like words as popular as grace. Like, what does that mean? Like, give me some, give me some information here. So spiritual formation, what is it? In its most basic form, one of the more common definitions, spiritual formation is the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus in the deepest parts of our souls by the spirit of God. So let's break that down a little bit. First, it's a process. It is a process. This isn't something that just happens in a moment. It's not, and it's not static. It's not something that can just be acquired. Okay? It's a dynamic journey. It's a gradual process toward wholeness in Christ. If we view spiritual formation as a static possession, then we'll think that the way forward, like toward wholeness, is acquisition acquiring the right information, adopting certain techniques. And so the line of thinking would be something like this. If I just get the right information and nail these techniques, then I'll get to my desired level of spiritual maturity. And this line of thinking is, I think, pretty common. It's more common than we think. 
Many of us struggle with this line of thinking, and so I would argue that many of us believe that this is how it actually works. Just get the right information, nail the techniques, boom, spiritually mature. But how often, if, like, if I'm asking you this question, how often has just getting the right information actually translated into consistent and sustained change? Like how often has it led to genuine transformation? We'll get to that later. Second, it's not something that's purely cosmetic. This transformation takes place in our souls. It's an inside-out transformation, not an outside-in transformation. And I think that this is, this is the biggest part of this, like what Ali was just talking about. This is for formative. Like what we tend to do in the church is we look at like certain things that we want to do. We just need to do the right things. And if we just do the right things, it'll change our heart. That's outside-in thinking. What the Lord is concerned about is your heart. He needs to change your heart. And if he can change your heart, and he, you get to a place where you actually trust him, and you're actually leaning into him, then the things on the outside will start to change. Here's another definition that I like. And this one comes from Dr. Robert Mulholland. He says, he defines spiritual formation this way. Christian spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. I'm going to read it one more time. Christian spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. And so there's obviously a ton of overlap in the two definitions I just gave, but I like this definition because he takes it a step further. What Dr. Mahalan does is he points out that spiritual formation is not some privatized, individualized thing where we're just on a quest towards some sense of heightened self-actualization. That can't be it because we don't exist in a vacuum. We don't live in our own little worlds. At least we're not supposed to. We're relational beings. That's the way we were created. So if, that's def if that definition is true, which I think it is, then we need to reflect on what that means to be formed into the image of Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, what is the image of Jesus? And so when I look at Jesus, I see someone, the one, who gave himself away for others. This was Jesus' heartbeat. He was others-oriented. And because of that, I believe that this is the direction the Spirit of God wants to move us in. Focus not just on ourselves, but on others. And if we forget this or we fail to do it, then I believe we're failing to live into holistic spiritual formation. So that's the definition we're working off of this week. Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus through the work of the Spirit for the sake of others. So that's what it is. How does it work? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> spiritual formation is a process that includes both the work of God and of man. All right. Spiritual formation is a process that includes both the work of God and man. So first, spiritual formation is primarily the work of God. Like That makes sense to us, right? God is actively at work in our transformation through the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the one who is working within us to change us, to cultivate new desires, and to produce in us the fruits of the Spirit. So think Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, self-control, patience, kindness. Though, like The Spirit is at work in us to produce those things. But spiritual formation also involves our cooperation. There is both a passive sense in which this is true and an active sense. Passively, we yield to God in his leading. 
So we trust that he, like the work that he wants to do in us is actually going to lead to an abundant life. That he's not trying to strip you from something to be enjoyed, right? Actively, however, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we strive for holiness. I, I like this definition. Um, I forget who it is, so I'm sorry for not citing it. But grace, it's, when it talks about grace, because I think a lot of times we're like, oh, like we don't get stuck in that works righteousness type of thinking. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. And that's what I think is happening here. Like with this active sense of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a choice. So as um, I was thinking about that, I was like, cool. So we defined it. That's how it works. But like, why is this important? Why is this important? And why is this important for us to be talking about at Snowboarders and Skiers for Christ? And as I was thinking about that, this thought came to my mind, the rapid decline of the church. It It probably comes as no surprise to you that the religious landscape in the West is changing at an incredibly dramatic rate. Church attendance is historically low among all generations. Now, I like was reading studies on this. Elders, boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers. That makes sense to me for millennials and Gen Zers. I didn't realize that it was happening among all generations. It is historically low. And they're falling at the same rate. And so with such consistent downward trends... Some have argued that the church is at the point of irreversible decline in the West. And so according to Barna, the the Barna group, this is this Christian research group, in their State of the Church 2020 report, they said that just one in four Americans is a practicing Christian. So a practicing, practicing Christian, the way that they defined it, is someone who identifies as a Christian, agrees strongly that their faith is important in their lives, and attends church regularly. That's what a practicing Christian is. And that number, when I read it, I was like, oh, that's kind of high. One in four? I'm surprised by that. But the number shows that the, uh, but this number shows that the number of practicing Christians has decreased 50% in the last 20 years. 50%. So people are abandoning the faith. They're abandoning the faith at an alarming rate, and they're just not interested. We've actually gotten to a point where What's, what's happening is it's not even so much agnosticism or atheism, it's apatheism. People don't care anymore. And the why behind that is fairly subjective. People have different reasons. But one consistent theme, at least that I saw when I was doing my research, according to the data, especially among millennials and Gen Zers, seems to be a lack of depth and authenticity. People aren't interested in a superficial, cosmetic, easy believism. Don't want it. So according to author and and pastor Ben Wendell, this is his, his words, there is a fatigue in these new generations around the church's attempt to just be cooler. It's a misread. They're not walking away from God. They're walking away from a church culture. That hit me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about that. Like, I mean, that, that hit me because we're a ski snowboard ministry. <laughs> like, we kind of, like, thrive on hype. <laughs> you know what I mean? But 
as I was thinking about it, like in a culture that's seen all the hype, there actually seems to be a hunger for substance. Mm -hmm. Something real, something deeper. People want a space where they can come and they can safely challenge and grapple with difficult topics. That's what they want. And so if that's true, then what that leads me to believe in a season of decline, the way forward is intentional, honest, vulnerable discipleship. Disciples of Jesus actively and honestly seeking the face of Jesus and inviting others to join them in this process. That's the way forward. And so that's why I think spiritual formation is important. Like when we were talking about all the different topics we could have covered in a week, this is why we, we landed on spiritual formation, because it's important. Now, I think it's important to point out at this juncture that spiritual formation is not an option. Spiritual formation is not an option. This isn't something that we can just take or leave, something reserved for the spiritually, spiritually elite or the particularly pious. The reality is, whether we re realize it or not, we're all being formed. We're all being formed. It's often been said that spiritual formation is not just a Christian thing, it's a human thing. And I think that's right. We're all becoming someone. We're all becoming someone. And if that's true, then the question isn't, are you willing to engage in spiritual formation? The question is, what kind of spiritual formation are you already engaged in? So what we need to realize from the outset is that there are different cycles of formation at play. Some are what we would call positive cycles of formation, and some are negative and destructive cycles of formation. Cycles that conform us to the image of the world and get us to indulge the flesh. I have, do you mind holding that up, Alan? So as I was thinking about this, this week, um, what, was gonna, what were you going to talk about this week? These are the two cycles that I see happening in our world. This is stuff that I've taken and adapted, so it's not all just like original to me. So in a cycle of deformation, it begins with an invitation to see and to consider. Like, right? Like, hey, this is a good way of life. This is a good way of living. This will lead you to the good life. Now, more often than not, it's a deceptive idea. And it's not some crazy sort of deception. That's not how the devil works. The devil, the devil doesn't come into you and like try to, to hit you with stuff that you don't care about. He's going to hit you with something that you actually crave. right? Whether that's freedom, wealth, status. And so he, what he does is he introduces a, an idea that plays to a disordered desire that we have. So we start to live into this disordered desire... And then what ends up happening is it's celebrated or normalized in, like, in culture. Who wouldn't want to be popular? Who wouldn't want to be wealthy? Work really hard. Get that. That earns, son. Like, that's, that's celebrated and normalized in our culture. But what ends up happening is it leads to discontent. There's no rest there. And so the cycle just plays all over again. And I think like, this is important for us to understand. We tend to look at life or we tend to think about life linearly. We begin at point A and we end at point B. It's not how it works. It's a cycle that just continues where we get to discontent and then we're invited to see and consider another way because we're desperately searching for something. 
Cycles of formation, same type of thing. We're invited, Jesus invites us to see and to consider a new way of life, a new way of being. That will involve a level of sacrifice, though. When Jesus says, come and follow me, leave what's normal, leave what you're most comfortable with, I'm inviting you to something better. But it involves sacrifice. But on the other side of sacrifice is celebration. We'll get to see a new way of being, and that will lead to rest. And so we'll bring this back out, but I wanted to talk about that. There's different cycles of formation at play. Positive cycles and negative cycles. And I would contend that one of our chief tasks as Christ followers is to identify these negative and destructive cycles. We need to call them out for what they are so that we can live into positive cycles of formation that drive us to maturity, that drive us to transformation, that drive us to Jesus. But here's the problem. Those negative cycles, those negative and destructive cycles of formation are subtle. They're not always easily identified or identifiable. And here's why, at least in my opinion, because they're practiced by culture at large. You grow, they're normal. You grow up in these cycles. You're surrounded by them. So you don't know any different. These cycles and, their pra- and the practices that we kind of give ourselves to are subtly ingrained into our way of being over time. And so that leads me to wonder if many of us actually realize the impact that culture plays in the way that you think about life and faith. Do you realize just how much culture influences the way that you live your lives and practice your faith? I know I don't. I'm just going to go ahead and tilt my cards for you. I'm oblivious most of the time. Like, it wasn't actually until I started working for SFC full-time where all of a sudden, I'm now responsible for leading and directing other people in their spiritual formation and leadership development that I started to realize how messed up my own heart was, right? I started to realize little by little just how much culture had impacted the way that I thought, the way that I lived and engaged with people, and the way that I led. And I don't have time to go into all the ways that culture, like, shaped and formed us, but I want to give two examples because I think it's like we need something tangible to hold on to, to for this to make sense. I can say that like culture influences us, but if we don't know how, like, you know, first, let's talk about our phones. <laughs> we carry around these little computers that possess 30,000 times the processing speed of the onboard navigational computer that guided Apollo 11 to the surface of the moon. Isn't that freaking crazy? (laughs) That's nuts. So, that's freaking crazy. Now, before you think that I'm going to launch into some long-winded, like, anti-tech, anti-phone lecture, I'm not. (laughs) I'm not anti-phone, and I'm not anti-tech. I actually really like my phone. It's super helpful. I use it every day to help me get to places, to keep in contact with people, to take pictures of my girls, to get my job done. And so I actually really like technology. And all the recent advances in technology have allowed me to connect with people all over the world. And especially like with SFC, I love that. I get to connect with people in Austria and Australia and in Czech. And then like, it's just, it makes my job easier, more enjoyable and more effective. 
But like most things, I've become accustomed to innovation, advances in technology. And so I don't even question it. I just adopt it blindly. And that's what I want to explore for a moment. I think most of us realize that technology has changed us. But the real question is, how is this changing us? And so I've explored this question. Um, and as I've explored that question, two formative changes seem apparent to me. One, we've become addicted to distraction. And number two, we've become conditioned to expect instant gratification. Study after study has proven that the more addicted we become to our phones, the more we lose our ability to concentrate on things for long periods of time. In an age where information is at its height, people, it's proven that people's ability to actually comprehend liter literacy rates are dropping at an alarming rate because we don't know how to sit and to actually think about a thing for a long period of time. So think about that for a second. Like, how often do you use your phone or any type of technology to escape from something? To escape from your studies? To escape from work? Like, I know that's been true for me. This lecture took me forever because I was freaking, like, looking at my phone every time I hit someplace hard. I was like, let me escape for a second. Like, typically, like, before I had a smartphone, I was kind of late to the game. I don't know what they call that in the bell curve. But I was super late. I was a late adopter. Um, not because I didn't think they were cool. I just didn't have the money. But before that, like, before I had a smartphone, if I ever got stuck on something in school or at work, I would just stick my head down and, like, work until I figured it out. Now, if I get stuck, I just take a quick break, scroll on my phone, browse the internet for some sort of mindless entertainment. That's typically what I do. And what I've come to realize is that all of these different kinds of distractions have led us to procrastinate around doing hard things. So when life gets hard, we don't stick our head down and we don't work to figure it out. We look for some sort of escape, another distraction. So beyond procrastination, I think it's important that we ask ourselves what the consequences of our distraction are. And here's a few that I can see. Number one, we aren't comfortable sitting in silence and solitude. And I would argue that this is why mental health issues are so rampant right now. We don't know how to deal with our thoughts. So rather than dealing with our thoughts, rather than listening to our hearts, we ignore all of that and we fill the silence with distraction. And I think it's hurting us more than we realize. But I think it's also a welcome affliction. And here's what I mean by that. How often do you hear people complaining about how busy they li their lives are, but they make no change? ever. <laughs> like, more often than not, they don't make any changes. At least they don't make any sustainable changes. And I had to ask myself, like, why is that? And I think it's because they want to be busy. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> they, like, they want, they actually want the thing, the very thing they're complaining about. Yeah. Because it keeps them from dealing with hard things. Now, I, I know that's a hard pill, pill to swallow, but I think it's important to point out. The second thing, so number one, we're not comfortable dealing or sitting in silence and solitude. Number two, we've become self-centered. We're so distracted by these little contraptions that we often fail to consider others. So for example, how often do we ignore the, pe the needs of the people right in front of us because we're preoccupied with what's going on with people who are nowhere near us? Like it sounds harsh, but like, have you ever stopped to consider how your phone specifically social media, has shaped the way that you inter interact and engage with your actual 
neighbors. Like face-to-face, real-life, actual neighbors. Something that um, this guy, he wrote, his name's Tony Ranke, he wrote this book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Something that he has pointed out is that social media has conditioned us to become passive observers. We've become accustomed to looking at the ups and downs of people's lives as anonymous spectators. So we feel no real need and no real impulse to respond or to step in their lives in any real meaningful way. We've become numb to it. The reality is that the more we've given ourselves to our phones, the more numb we've become to the needs of the people around us. We're distracted. I think online communities can be amazing. Don't get me wrong. Like I went to a a conference not too long ago in Portland called The Art of Teaching. And uh, it was largely a pastoral conference, but one of the sessions was on digital ministry. And I think that there's a space for that. I really do. Like if if people are going to be on the internet, then we should try to meet them with something that's actually of substance. Right? So don't get me wrong. I'm like, I'm not saying that throw it all away. I, I think that they can be a sweet and enriching way to connect with people. Sometimes people you never would have had the opportunity to meet in real life. But I think it can also be a way to escape the challenges that actual face-to-face relationships manifest. So what ends up happening is we'll, we'll lean into an idealized sense of community that we've built online for ourselves, rather than welcoming our given contexts and dealing with people who may differ from us. Whether that's in belief, lifestyle, routine, whatever. So that's, uh, that's two ways that I've seen it. The third way is uh, instant gratification and the loss of self-control. So, patience, which was once considered virtue, is now considered an annoying waste of time. Because you don't, technology has eliminated the need to wait on anything. But waiting has its merits. It has its merits. According to English professor, professor at Bucknell, Harold Schweitzer, he says, waiting gives people time for thinking, inspiration, and regeneration. And it also adds value to objects and experiences. It adds value to objects and experiences. He says, I recall that it was John Crow Ransom who some 50 years ago pointed out that in courtship, the object of desire attains value precisely through the time a courtship takes. So you're thinking about like courtship, we think about dating. You're courting a person, and as you continue to court them, they become more valuable in your eyes. You get to know them better, right? And so I believe it's the same for reading and studying. I, I, I think reading and studying is essentially an act of courtship, of waiting. You're spending time reading and dealing with a, a difficult concept, and as you do it, it attains value because you've waited for it. You've waited on it. The process brings about value. Delays in gratification can actually bring about greater enjoyment. But when we don't wait on things and when we fail to invest our time, objects and experiences tend to remain without value. We'll just go to the next thing. And so, what do we do? Fill our life with fast-paced activities in an attempt to fill the void. And it doesn't help. 
I would say, in fact, more often than not, it just leads to heightened levels of aggravation. Because why isn't this fulfilling whatever need, desire, thing I'm looking for? And so, again, here's my point with all this. I don't think it's bad to lean into technological advancements. I'm, I'm saying it like six times, because I don't know what to do like of anti-phone. I think it's amazing to watch humans exercise their God-given ability to create and to innovate. And I think it's freeing to watch people lean into like spontaneity and flexibility that technology brings. There's freedom there. But I think we need to be aware, and that's what I'm trying to hit on. We need to be aware of how these cultural shifts are affecting and they're changing us. Sometimes we lean into these shifts thinking that they will help us master our time and our lives, but often it makes us into slaves. So that's the first example I wanted to explore, our phones. Number two, our obsession with information. Our culture is obsessed with information. According to Dr. Mulholland, who I cited earlier, our culture, this is his words, is an objectivizing, informational, functional culture. And I think he's right. So essentially what he's saying there is that we are a culture who is bent on control and manipulation. We tend to be people who are like, look at the world as if it's something to be grasped, controlled, and manipulated for our own purposes. And one of the best ways that we, do, we can do that is through information. We're information gatherers. Like, that's what we do. We're hoarders. We're constantly on search for new and important tech, like information, new technique, techniques, new methods, new systems, new programs, because we've been conditioned to believe that information is power. Information is the key to success. Master these new techniques, these new methods, these new systems, these new pr- programs, and things are going to go well for you you'll be successful and you'll see progress, right? It's a perspective that's become so deeply ingrained in us, I believe, that that's how we've come to determine our self-image and our value, by how effectively we master and control and manipulate things, which is why we have all these identity issues. Because if I, if I don't come in and I don't get the right information and I don't perform at this specific level, then I'm not valuable. I'm not at the level of my coworkers. What is happening? And we fall into anxiety, we become riddled with anxiety, we become depressed. Now, I could go, like, I have, have a ton on, like, the effects of informationally obsessed culture. I'm not going to do that. My point is that we've been conditioned to operate and to think this way. And that we often bring that type of thinking into our faith. Yeah. We, we treat our faith as if it's something to be mastered. And so if we don't see any progress, then that must mean something's wrong. Either with God the church, or thus. And I believe that that's wrong thinking. I would argue that we've been duped. Contrary to popular belief, I don't think information is enough. I think it's a good starting point, but I don't think it's enough. We've accepted the idea that if we can just get the right information, things will change. But how is that working for you? How is that working for us? Like, have you ever experienced a gap between your knowing something and your doing something? As Paul says in Romans 7, we often know what we should do, but we don't do these things. Why is that? I think, I would argue that it's because we're not just thinking things. Knowing something, getting the right information isn't enough. There's something deeper going on within us that is driving us. And so, those are my examples. I know that that's a lot to take in, and I don't want to overwhelm anybody. 
Um, all I'm trying to do is illustrate just how much culture influences the way that we think about life and faith. I think it's naive to walk around, like think that we can walk around unaffected by the mores and rules of culture. They will have an impact on the way that we think and live, and it's hard to push against these narratives when they're the meta-narrative. So what do we do with all that? If all that's true, how can we push back against this? Spiritual formation. Here's my conclusion. Spiritual formation. An honest and intentional seeking after the Lord. This was the heart of the early church. As Pastor John Tyson said in a recent podcast, we have to realize that the great apostolic mission and vision was the formation of Christ in the hearts of God's people. So think of Paul in Galatians 4. My children, I'm undergoing birth pains until Christ is formed in you. That was his mission. And so what does that mean, practically speaking? What I think it means is we have to be willing to dream up a whole new life again. We need to accept that there is a new and a better way to be human. A life situated in the kingdom of God. So I look at that cycle, if you don't mind holding that up again, Alan. That cycle of formation. See, Jesus is inviting us to see something different, something significant. He is inviting us to receive revelation about something wonderfully new. But it will lead to sacrifice. There has to be. We can't bring our old life with us. That's what Jesus said. And that's the practical challenge of discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus doesn't always make you more popular. You may never get into the inner circle of society, but it's the place, it's that place, it's in this place of closeness to Jesus that you get to experience the presence of Jesus. And that's where it's celebrating. So it leads to celebration. Once you've passed through various trials, you'll see that what God was always trying to invite you to is something better, a new life, an abundant life, a life where you experience the deep presence and blessing of God. And that leads to rest. I think most of us, like the reality is that most of us adopt ways of life that we believe are pointing us to the good life. And so we orient our lives in that direction because we're driven by desire. We're driven by our hearts. So I think Augustine, St. Augustine was onto something when he wrote, he's talking to like in a prayer, God, you have made us for yourself and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in you. I think many of us have probably heard that statement before. I think it's probably what spurred on the whole God-shaped whole line, maybe. So we're familiar with that, but have you ever stopped to consider the implications of what that statement means? What he's saying there. I think he's saying, hey, you were designed for something. Namely, relationship. We weren't made to just be static containers for ideas, like we just talked about. We were created as dynamic beings constantly moving toward an end. And the thing that's directing us toward that end is our heart. And I think we have some funny ideas about what the heart is nowadays and what that means. And so let me just quickly point out when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not referring to some sort of like overly emotional, mushy, romantic comedy thing. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the center of our being. It's the seat of a person's most fundamental longings. It's what drives us. It's the engine that drives us. And so the heart serves as a sort of compass, directing us and pointing us and pulling us towards certain ends. 
And so if that's true, if we're oriented toward what we desire the most, what we love the most, then it makes sense that information can't be the only thing to change our behaviors. So I think we need more than ideas. We need ideas that are embodied, that are lived out. We need a picture of something better. The question becomes then, what picture do you have in your head and your heart? Like, what picture of the good life is driving you? When Jesus says, come, follow me, do you trust that the life that he is offering is better? Can you picture the type of life that he is promising to you? Can you picture an Acts 2 type of church where all God's people are striving side by side and sharing everything that they have? Are you willing to live your life the way that Jesus lived his life? Are you willing to do the things that Jesus did? That's what it means to be Jesus' follower, right? Like, you look at the life of Jesus, we're going to do it. And it sounds so simple, but if it's so simple, then why do so many of us struggle to do it? I think it's because we're busy. We're distracted. I think we need to form a new picture in our minds. And so let me end with this. I think Jesus is inviting us this week. I think Jesus is inviting us lifelong into a life of discovery. I think he wants to renew our experience of Christ-empowered transformation in our personal lives and in the lives of our communities. Remember, it's not just about you. You're being formed in the image of Jesus for the sake of others. And it's my belief that this type of experience comes through experiment. So as we look at the life of Jesus and the life that he's calling us to, we need to find creative ways to implement these kingdom rhythms into our own life. We need to understand that some of those experiments will go better than others, right? Like some will be easier than others, but that's the call. If you're anything like me, you're ready to give Jesus certain areas of your life, right? You're willing to press into transformation in certain areas, the easy parts of the transformation process. But are you willing to press into the harder parts of the transformation process, those areas where you're not like Christ? That's the whole idea of formation, We've received an incredible call from Jesus. And obedience to this call is not something that we can just pick up or put down at our will. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been chosen, you've been called, and you've been commissioned. And we need to believe that this is the life that, like, this life that we've been called to is worth it. Because I believe if we believe that, then we'll start actually living into our responsibility to present all of ourselves to Jesus as a living sacrifice. All right, so there you have it, the first session of the SFC Boot Camp, introducing the topic of spiritual formation. Allie and I hope that you found those talks helpful, because as we said at the beginning, we believe that this is an incredibly important topic. Whether we realize it or not, we're all being shaped, we're all being formed into someone. And if we're not careful, we can lean into some pretty unhealthy cycles of formation, cycles that don't lead to rest and that really just bring about discontent. And so as we identify those unhealthy cycles of formation, it's our prayer that we would lean into the cycle of formation that Jesus invites us into, one that leads to an abundant life, one that leads to rest. Because when we do, we not only are healthier, but we can better engage our communities and bring life and light to our communities. Thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate you being here. As always, it's our prayer that these kinds of conversations would help all of us to shine brighter and to bridge better. We'll see you next time.